Well, let's pray and we'll get into our text. Father of mercy, it's been a wonderful day already. We've had the privilege to sing your praise, the fruit of our salvation. We've had the privilege to observe a baptism. We thank you for that. And Lord, now we get to hear your word preached. We pray that you would give us ears to hear. Pray your spirit would attend to the preaching of the word of God today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The former pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, H.A. Ironsides, once recounted having Dwight L. Moody's Bible in his possession one day. And he was thumbing through the Bible and he found a note written in the margins of a verse, Philippians 4.19. Philippians 4.19 tells us that my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And that verse was labeled by Moody, the Christian's banknote. The president of the bank, my God, the promises to pay shall supply the amount all your needs. The capital of the bank, according to his riches in glory, and the banker, Christ Jesus himself. And for the believer, heaven's bank is always available, and the cashier, the Lord Jesus Christ, is always present. And the capital of the bank is never impaired. And we have seen that in chapter 23 with David, verses 1 to 14. David is knee deep in the wilderness. He's running from the most powerful man in the world. There is a nationwide manhunt. But again, as we saw from last week, Dale Ralph Davis says so eloquently, true, in the wilderness, the darkness is there. But perhaps part of that darkness is the shadow of the Almighty. And we saw the Lord's shadow in his divine guidance of David as he led him to go save the people of Keilah. And then he revealed to him that the, the very people he had saved were going to betray him. We also saw, saw his shadow as he was delivered from the hand of Saul in verse 14. Today we see two more of his shadows, the Lord's shadows, in this chapter. The first we see in verses 15 to 18, the shadow of divine encouragement. I say divine encouragement because God encourages his people generally through human agency. Notice with me in verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. Ziph was uh, in southern Judah, if you will, and it was about 12 miles from Keilah. And now Saul continually persists to kill David. David is in the wilderness. This is a low point in David's life. 
All of us in the wilderness experience low points. And this one was a particularly low point for him. And yet, in the midst of the struggle, there are evidences of grace. And there's always evidences of grace with God's people in the wilderness. What's interesting here is that Saul and his 3,000 men can't find him. That's quite remarkable. But Jonathan can. Notice with me in verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. Think about that. Saul, this warrior, with an army of trained men, cannot find David. And Jonathan goes straight to him. And it says, he strengthened his hand in God. Now, why is this here? Well, in one sense, this is a historical account of how God preserved his anointed future king while he was in the wilderness. The seed of the serpent will not prevail over the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15 drives the entire Bible narrative. In one sense, that's why it's here. But remember, the Scripture is a sin-reversal document. That is why it's given to us. And the Lord in Scripture gives us glimpses of functional faith, hope, and love in a fallen world where dysfunction has become the new normal. Our natural selves, the natural world, is dysfunctional. It's turned upside down. And so he gives us, God gives us these glimpses of what true faith, hope, and love looks like. And we see it here. This is the second or seventh time where we see the word hand in chapter 23. He strengthened his hand in God. The hands of the various characters in chapter 23 represent the power struggle. The question is, whose hand will prevail? And Jonathan goes to David and strengthens his hand in God. If David is going to prevail, in other words, he needs his friend. He needs Jonathan. Of course, Jonathan's mere, mere presence would, would have been comforting. But our personal presence does not have the same impact that God's word does. Now, let me caveat that new, uh, for a second. When a person is going through a tragedy, they don't need a theology lesson. They need your presence. But if a person is discouraged, they need the word of God. And Jonathan knew that. And he gives it to David. Verse 17. He said to him, and this tells us how he strengthened David's hand in God, do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. It's been said, and I've never counted this, but 
It's been said there are 365 commands to not fear in Scripture, one for every day. And in every case, this command to not fear comes in terrifying circumstances where fear is the natural response. And that's why we need those commands. But the word to not fear in the Bible is never some kind of empty cliche at some attempt to comfort someone. It's an expression of a reality that is more powerful than the terrifying circumstances themselves. And so every time we read the command to not fear, we need to be mindful. This isn't bumper sticker theology. This is God coming to bear on our difficult and terrifying circumstances. And he is more powerful than those circumstances. But at the natural level, how could it be possible that David not fear? Again, there is a nationwide manhunt after him to kill him. But David knew the answer, theoretically. But in the wilderness, we often lose perspective, don't we? We lose our bearings. And we need brothers, we need sisters to come alongside us and remind us and bring us back to reality. And Jonathan knows the answer. And the answer is by hearing and believing the promises of God. Jonathan strengthened David's hand by the word of God. And what David heard from Jonathan overcame what David saw. What did he see? He saw hopelessness. He, he saw no light at the end of the tunnel. He saw no way out of this. He saw certain death. And what he hears from Jonathan overcame what he saw. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing the word of Christ. The differences that the promises of God make to what we see is crucial to our capacity to flourish as, as believers. For example, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he and the disciples could see what was ahead. As he said, Matthew 17 the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. The twelve could see this. The disciples could see this. And Matthew 17 tells us that they were greatly distressed. If they only had a promise more powerful than what they could see. And they did. And he will be raised on the third day. That's the promise more powerful than what they could see and what they could feel at that given moment. And Christians have those promises and a central means of 
experiencing those promises and communicating those promises is other believers. And so as we go through life in this broken world, this wilderness between our redemption and our inheritance, biblical encouragement is a vital skill. It's a vital skill. Of course, to be skilled at biblical encouragement requires us also to know what biblical encouragement is not. It's not trying to make someone feel emotionally better temporarily. Now, that's not necessarily sinful, and we've all done it. But recognize, that's just a Band-Aid. For example, maybe you've said this. I've said it. Hang in there. It'll get better. It's not that bad. This too shall pass. That's not necessarily sinful to say. But there's nothing life-changing about it. These statements may temporarily comfort, but they're not lasting. At best, you may change the person's mood for a moment, only to watch it melt away when they're confronted with the reality of their circumstances again. But it's likely also to sound trite to a person who's struggling to hear those things. It can sound very trite. It can sound cliche. It might even sound non-caring. And here's the reason. It doesn't deal with the biggest reason we get discouraged. The reason we get discouraged as believers is that at any given moment of our discouragement, we don't see the Lord. And we develop promise amnesia. That's behind the discouragement. And so biblical encouragement that leads to lasting change is about helping each other see the Lord with the eyes of their heart. To remind them once again of the promises of God. Those promises that overcome their unbelief and their amnesia. Biblical encouragement always seeks to lead a person back to the Lord. I've known people here in my nine plus years at Fisherville who have done just the opposite. I know people that their form of encouragement not only pushes people away from the Lord, they disappear from the church. That's not biblical encouragement. That's the spirit of Antichrist. So what is biblical encouragement? Well, we could preach an entire sermon on this, but let's just look at what Jonathan does here. First of all, it centers on the person of God, the person of the Lord. You say, where does he do that? Well, notice what he says in verse 17. You shall be king over Israel. Saul, my father, also knows it. He's reminding him who the God is. Now, where is that in the text? Well, he knows that David is going to be king because God promised him that he was going to be king. So he takes him back to who God is, the covenant-keeping God, 
the God who is sovereign over all circumstances and all earthly powers. And then he reminds him of the promises of God. And so biblical encouragement centers on the person of God and the promises of God. Of course, David had unique promises, promises made to him that we don't have. But every believer has promises that address every aspect of our brokenness, our fallenness, and every circumstance we may face in the wilderness. Not the least of which is the one that David gave to us in Psalm 56, 9 in these very circumstances. And remember when God delivered him from the king of Gath and he wrote Psalm 56 and verse 9 says, This I know, God is for me. That's the foundational promise for the believer. And that's why Paul picked it up in that glorious passage in Romans 8. Romans 8, we see Paul meditating on that verse, and he, he essentially says, God is our sovereign protector. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a promise. It's a promise. Paul is meditating on David's circumstances in the wilderness and on that psalm that was birthed out of those circumstances. And then he goes on to reveal that he's also our sovereign benefactor. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how much more will he in him freely give us all things? That is, if, if God can give you your greatest need, fill that greatest need with his greatest gift, everything else pales in comparison. He's also our sovereign champion. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? He is, it is God who justifies. Who is it is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. Furthermore, is also risen, who ascended to God's right hand and makes continual intercession for us. He is interceding for you at every moment. He ever lives to make intercession for you. That's a promise. And there's no wilderness circumstance that can circumvent what God is doing in his son for you. And he's also our sovereign keeper. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? He says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor any created thing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Those are the promises of God. God has countless promises to the believer that can radically alter the way we perceive and respond to our difficulties. And we are responsible to each other to make sure that these promises stay before our brothers and sisters. We are responsible to make sure that every church family member stays fueled by these promises. What happens to a car when you run out of fuel? You're hitchhiking, aren't you? The fuel for the believer is the promises of God. And we are responsible to each other to make sure we don't run out of fuel this is the basic covenantal life.
the covenantal life of faith. We see the language of covenant. In fact, seen in verse 18. Notice in verse 18. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. They've already done that. They're just renewing that covenant. David remained at Horash, and Jonathan went home. Now, this will be the last time that they will ever see each other. They don't know that, but it's the last time. But for our purposes, with Jonathan as our example, and the New Testament commanding it, could you say that your life is a covenantal life? You say, well, where does the New Testament command it? Well, it's seen in the commands to serve one another. In fact, that word, it's two words in, in Greek or in English, one another. It's one word in Greek, a le long, one another. There are 100, 100 commands in 94 verses of the New Testament to in some way serve or love one another. Now, let's go back to David for a moment. Some questions can't be answered, but that doesn't mean that we wouldn't profit asking them. Would David have persevered in the wilderness had Jonathan not strengthened his hand in God? Likely not. Think about all the betrayals. He has served Saul. Saul wants to kill him. He saved the people of Keilah. They hand him over to Saul. We're going to see with the Ziphites that they're going to seek to have him put to death to protect themselves. The implication here is that what happens in verses 16 to 18 for David's ministry is massive. And it also informs our calling to ever believer. Going back to this, these one another texts, let me offer you a few examples. And by the way, all of these examples take place in the context of the local church. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, seek to do good to one another. Again, there are 100 one another text. Galatians 5.13, through love, serve one another. What if we took these commands more seriously than we did our rights in local church life? The rights that we think we have that often leads to bitterness and disunity and divisiveness. What if we just majored on the commands? Romans 12, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Again, Romans 12, 10, outdo one another in showing love. Galatians 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens. 
1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build one another up. Hebrews 10 verse 24, stir up one another to love and good works. That comes in the context of a warning, in fact, that if we don't persevere in the faith, we will not be saved. Critical to that is stirring up one another to love and good works. James 5.16, pray for one another. This is the covenantal life that we see modeled by Jonathan with David. And that is our example. And with these New Testament commands, here's the question I would ask yourself. I would ask you, is your life a covenantal life? Again, we're not given a, an explicit command in 1 Samuel 23, 16 to 18. We're given an example. Is your life a covenantal life? Or is your life more consumeristic? I think those are the two extremes. One is fueled by love for God. By gratitude for his mercies. The other, the consumeristic life, which is epidemic in Western churches, is fueled by love for self. Self-love. The very thing the gospel is to overcome. On the other hand, do you see your need... And hence, make your life available to experience the ministry of others. If not, it's likely you're not persevering in the faith. Because Hebrews 10 tells us that a central means of persevering in the faith is to be stirred up by others towards love and good deeds. And all of this is divine provision. That's how God provides for his people through human agency. So let's not cut ourselves off from being agents of divine provision. You're cheating your church family. And not cut yourself off either in receiving this divine provision. In Joseph Hellerman's book, When the Church Was a Family, he points out that Christianity started out in Israel as a community. Now, there's some generalizations here, and there's exceptions to what he's saying here, but I think this is a helpful outline to think a bit about church history. It started out in Israel as a community. You see it in Acts. They need each other. All hell is broken loose on them. And they, they need each other to persevere in the faith. And as they, as they loved each other, as they experienced community life, what happened? It says the disciples increased. The word of God increased and the disciples increased. When it moved to Greece, Christianity became a philosophy. When it moved to Rome, 
it became an institution. When it moved into Europe, it became a government. And when it moved to America, it became an enterprise, big business. That's indicting, isn't it? So how do we get back to what we were, a community? Every local church, understanding that that's who we are, everything else is a parody. It's the Lord's provision for our wilderness. That brings us to the second shadow. We've seen the shadow of divine encouragement. And the last shadow in this text we see is the shadow of divine providence. Notice in verse 19. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hekilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Such betrayal. It's out of self-love and self-preservation. Again, as I said last week, when we fail to even mention the name of Jesus on our lips around particular people out of fear of their raising their eyebrows. That's the spirit of the Ziphite. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. A full-blown narcissist at this point. He has sinned his way there. Again, sin never leaves you stagnant. Sin is poison and always leads to spiritual atrophy. You never remain where you are. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. He's experienced it himself. He'll see it again in chapter 24. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides. And come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. First Keilah and now Ziph. How does one respond to such betrayal? Every person here has in some sense been betrayed. It's one of the most painful experiences that you could ever face, especially when it's someone, brethren, 
And these are brethren. These are fellow Judahites. Well, how does Saul respond or David respond? Well, we read it this morning. Psalm 54. It tells us here he went down to the rock and he lived in the wilderness of Maon. And Psalm 54 tells us in the inscription that this was the occasion when he wrote that psalm. Which, by the way, may have never happened if Jonathan had not strengthened his hand in God. Jonathan strengthening David's hand in God had reverberating, enduring effects. That's why biblical encouragement is vital. Each one of us are instruments of biblical encouragement. We're also recipients. Psalm 54, just listen to that psalm. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Verse 1. Oh God, hear my prayer. Notice, David is no longer playing deceitful. He's no longer acting like he's insane like he did at Gath. He's gone Godward. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Verse 3, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Instead of slandering the Ziphites to his 600 men, instead of going horizontal, he goes vertical. This is the remedy. This is how you deal with the pains and betrayals that we all experience in the wilderness. Verse 6, I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. A grateful heart in the wilderness when you've been betrayed and the most powerful man on the planet wants you dead. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. David is responding by rehearsing and meditating on the promises and the person of God. Where was he refueled to do that? Jonathan. Jonathan. And so David has withdrawn to the wilderness of Maon... And he is responding in obedience, even writing an inspired song that would serve the family of faith for thousands upon thousands of years. He's right dab in the middle of the will of God, but that's only intensified the struggle. Don't allow prosperity teaching to deceive you. Obedience does not make the struggles go away. Sometimes it intensifies the struggle. There's warfare involved. Notice the second part of verse 25. And when David heard that, or Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. 
and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. Now at this point, in spite of Jonathan's promise to David, Jonathan's words to David, in spite of Samuel's promise to David that he would be king, it seems that David is doomed. Have you ever been there? Your circumstances are completely hopeless. That's what you see. Hopeless circumstances. It's what you feel. But here's what we're going to see. God's holy and wise and powerful and meticulous providence has never been subservient to the powers of this world. Look in verse 27. As they were closing in on David and his men to capture them, verse 26, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. And so Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. What a coincidence. No. What good luck David experienced. No. What good fortune David had here as Saul was bearing on him, no. The truth is implied. God is a God of providence. God's providence is his holy and wise and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions to bring about his glorious Christocentric purposes in the world. And at this moment in time, the Christ is David. The Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah is David. And we can claim those truths as well. God is provident over us. We are anointed in Christ. 1 John 2. We are in Christ and we have an anointing from the Holy One. This is the providence of God. His providence is never subservient to your circumstances. It is never subservient to the powers of this world. Remember that when you turn on the news. God's purposes will prevail. And similarly to what we see in verse 14, notice how it ends. David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. I've been there. Literally, in 21st century terms, it is across the street from the Dead Sea where he will go and abide. And these are rugged hills, but there is this glorious water spout, water source that's still there. We got into the water. It's cold water in a very hot place. Rugged caves, but a place to hide. Isolation, protection, supply of water. God has delivered his saint again. 
He's reminding David, this is not your home. But I am providing for you in the wilderness. So in our chapter, divine guidance, we saw that last week, divine deliverance, divine encouragement, and divine providence sustained God's anointed in the wilderness. And we are God's anointed in Christ in the wilderness as well. It's a word to us. And he sustained him because, yes, God is good to his people. God is faithful to his people. But don't forget, David was unique. He would be head of a covenant. Not yet. We'll read that in 2 Samuel 7. And this covenant that we know as the Davidic covenant would be the means to fulfill the promises made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, which was a subset of the covenant of creation that God made with Adam. And at the center of God's plan for David, as a result, will be to restore God's ruined world that it might serve his original creation purposes. Of course, the covenant that would be made with David would find its fruition in an even greater covenant, the new covenant, ratified by his far-off grandson, Jesus. And that's why David's deliverance in the wilderness is beautiful, but it's merely an anticipation of a greater deliverance of his son, his far-off son, Jesus. Because this time, it won't be providence that delivers Jesus, the greater David. It will be a miracle itself. Because Jesus will actually die to ratify the covenant. He will die for sinners. And every person who believes and trusts and commits themselves to this Davidic king, Jesus Christ, and trusts that his death pays the sin debt for everyone who would believe and that he was raised, delivered by God from sin and death, which is the miracle that delivered him, will be saved. Indeed, because of that miracle, Jesus Christ is our provision in the wilderness that makes all other provisions Though beautiful they might be, pale in comparison. In 1863, a girl named Charity Bancroft wrote a hymn. The name of the hymn was called The Advocate. And it beautifully captured that truth. Christ is our provision 
in the wilderness. I would like to close with us meditating on the words of that hymn. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One in himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. And those, we can confess these glorious truths because... All the way back in the wilderness, God sustained his anointed one, David. Indeed, the cashier of heaven's bank is Jesus. And the bank's capital are the riches of his glory. And because he ascended and sent his spirit, the cashier is always present with his people. Always, every moment of every day in the wilderness, it's impossible to bounce a check of faith. Let's pray. Father of mercy, thank you for your provision for us in the wilderness. You guide us, you encourage us, you deliver us. You work providentially in our lives to, to fulfill your purposes for us. But ultimately, our greatest provision is a person. Grant us the eyes of faith to behold him. Lord, when we get discouraged, it's because we don't see you in the face of your son. Raise up brothers and sisters here at Fisherville that this would be a community of faith, a covenantal community, a community that sees our task to ensure that each brother and sister is fueled by the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's any here today that have never trusted in Christ, I pray today they would be saved. Lord, I would love to speak to them, whether they come during the song or find me after the service. We pray that they would do business with you today in your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.